Lord, we do come before you with thanksgiving in our heart for the good gifts of salvation that you've given us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And thank you for the good gift of the book that you've given us. Your words written down and it is life-changing, it is powerful, it's transformative. And so we pray that we'll hear you speak to us today through your word, and that you would transfer it out of a book or out of a digital device, however we're looking at it, and you would place it where it belongs, and that is in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds. That we might live a life that would bring you glory, and you are worthy of that. So we give you all praise for this wonderful gift. Help us to give our attention and affection to you as we look at it together. Pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. So Romans chapter 5. Greg gave us a little review from last week. We're going to continue on. Verses 12 through 21 is our text today. So let's go ahead and read that. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more having the grace of God and the free gift by the, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace abounded also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that is the word of the Lord. You can see how I titled uh, this section of verses as two men and two races. Hopefully you've already, from reading it, can see why that is so, but it will become more clear as we go through it. You know, it takes no great amount of observation to see how the affairs of our lives can depend on the decisions and the actions of one or two men, two people. Consider how our lives have been affected since 2016 to the present and 
And that's based on the actions, decisions of two men. First, President Trump. And then secondly, our current president, President Biden. And over these years, the decisions and actions of these two men has kind of transformed the nation in which we live. And, you know, it has had major implications in the political and judicial realm, as well as right down to the economics that make a difference on how much we pay for things like gasoline or food, or whether there's even going to be food, you know, when we go look for it. Because of the nature of how the Founding Fathers wrote the Constitution, we are a republic, we are a representative government, um, not just with the president, but with the, the Congress as well. But when they wrote it, when the president of the United States makes decision, he does so as a representative of the entire populace, the entire nation. This is the idea known, at least in theological terms, as federal headship. Federal headship. And federal headship is what we will see and seek to understand in this passage that we just read. Just as we can just now briefly considered how the decision and actions of two men have impacted the world in which we live, so Paul set, sets forth the truth that two men who performed two different acts had two different results on two different races of people. The idea of federal headship, in case you didn't know this, maybe you've not heard that term before, but the idea of federal headship is not explicitly stated in the scriptures. You, you, you couldn't do a concordance word search and find federal headship. You could find headship, but not federal with it. Federal headship uh, is simply a way that some scholars, some Bible uh, scholars have chosen to speak about Adam's and then Christ's involvement in the destiny of humanity. The theory is based, actually, on Paul's argument in Romans chapter 5, the passage that we're in, that says that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin came into the world through one man. And then from Adam to Moses, even before the law was given, it says that death reigned, verse 14. That was... Initially, verse 12. So if there was no Mosaic law, and if where there is no law, there is no transgression, which we looked at in Romans 4 and verse 15, how could Adam's descendants, his sons and his other descendants, become or deemed be seen as sinful? Right? Applying the concept of federal headship, we can say that it was because they were part of the human race. They're part of the human race, the descendants of Adam. Adam was their representative, and therefore Adam's transgression applied to all men. He is the federal head of the human race. And this brings us to our text for today. And it is in this paragraph that Paul essentially sums up all that he said to this point about condemnation and justification. And it also leads into what he's going to say in the rest of the letter, moving into sanctification and 
both positionally and practically and, and uh, many other uh, doctrines, wonderful doctrines, but it is kind of midpoint and it sums up what has gone before and leads into what is going to come. And the reason that this passage is so significant is because Paul teaches how two men, through their two acts, had two results on two races of people. And more importantly, it indicates that Jesus has overturned, overcome the effects of Adam's sin for those who trust in him as the Savior. The construction of this paragraph is kind of difficult, confusing, if, if, if you're not paying attention to it, if you're not careful. And I'm not going to follow the exact layout. Let me just tell you kind of the layout of the paragraph. I'm going to address it a little bit differently. But in, in verse 12, Paul begins to explain how through Adam's one sin, the whole of humanity was impacted. Right? And sin came into the world through him and death through sin. However, he breaks off his sentence. Some of your Bibles, probably most of them might have like a dash at the end of verse 12. And it goes into verse 13. It's letting you know that what follows is kind of a parenthetical thing where it's, a, it's Paul going off on a rant or a, a, a rabbit trail or uh, him talking about Adam's impact leads into this further discussion where he compares Adam's one act with the one act of Jesus in detail using both comparison as well as contrast to make his point. And that's verses 13 through 17. Then in, in verse 18 through 21, he picks up where he left off in verse 12. So it's kind of like you could read it, verse 12, and then skip right down to verse 18 to get the flow of his original thought. And he continues in those last few verses, the comparison to show how the act of righteousness by Jesus overcomes the act of sin by Adam. This is a, a wonderful and important passage of scripture for us to, to understand and be able to explain to other people. Because people will say, well, you know, it just doesn't seem fair that I, you know, I get the blame for someone else. But, you know, this is the world that we live in. Federal headship is not just a theological thing. It's the world that we live in. And so how I'm breaking down the passage, you can see in your insert two main points. The first of which is that Adam brought the reign of death. He brought the reign of death. In the first three verses of this, verses 12 through 14, Paul is intending to emphasize the universal effect of Adam's one act of sin. Verse 12 is important because it sums up three stages of human history from the beginning to the time of Christ. And the first is not directly stated, but it's implicitly uh, stated. And it speaks of mankind before Adam sinned. So it takes us back to Genesis 2. After Adam is created and placed in the garden, and then God takes from him and creates Eve, and they're living in the garden, and they're living in what is called oftentimes a state of innocence, because there was no sin yet in the world. There was no sin among mankind, and we don't know how long that period of time lasted. The, the Bible's not clear about that. It could have been a long time. 
You know, it's, it's kind of like, uh, was a thousand years like a day with the Lord? Was it that kind of that way in the, in, you know, with Adam and Eve? We just don't know. We don't know, but it might have been very short, but it is the first stage of human history, state of innocence. And then secondly, it speaks of sin and death entering into the world through one man. An obvious reference to Adam, right? An obvious reference to Adam. And then third, it tells us about sin and death spreading to all people because all people sinned. Three stages. Innocence, one man sins, everyone sins. Verse 12 begins clearly a new section, and yet it is associated with what goes before. We, we talk about this oftentimes whenever you see a therefore, you stop and see what it's there for. And that's how verse 12 reads, therefore. So what is he tying it back to? It always is referencing what is preceded. Well, it could be all the way from chapter 1 through the end of uh, verse 11 in chapter 5, but I tend to think that it's more directly related to what he has just said, the part of the passage that Pastor Greg was reading in Romans 5. And I think particularly, he didn't read the last three verses, but I think it particularly relates to verse 10 through 11. Uh, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So I think Paul is most likely linking to that teaching on God providing not only justification, but reconciliation, that Jesus overcame what Adam brought into the world, sin and death, Jesus brought life and harmony in relationship with God. And that's what he's going to address in this passage that we're looking at, the impact of Adam and his one act and the impact of Jesus and his one righteous act. Now, I've broken that first section into two different ideas, and the first of those is written out for you. Sin came into the world through one man. First part of verse 12. So Paul's argument in this passage begins with, actually in verses 12 through 14, two undeniable facts. Two undeniable facts. The universality of sin and the universality of death. Sin came into the world through one man and death entered with it and death spread to all men because all men sinned. So we cannot deny these facts everywhere. And anywhere we look, there is evidence that what Paul says is true. Right? Uh, You don't have to go outside your home. You don't have to go outside of your own life. You can look at it in big picture as well. There's just sin and death everywhere. One of the saddest statements, I think, in all of the Bible is the fact that sin came into the world. It wasn't there. It wasn't there, and then it came into the world. And again, although we don't know how long the age of innocence lasted for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we do know that it was a place and an environment made for those who knew nothing about sin and death. I mean, it was a perfect environment made for perfect people whose bodies were created to enjoy eternal relationship with God. 
Did you get that? Adam and Eve would have just continued to live, as would their descendants. If sin had not entered the world, it would have been what, like what we expect, a glorified body uh, when Jesus comes for us. That was their environment. And then came that infamous day when Adam chose to disobey God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at the moment that he made that choice, sin entered into the world, came into the world. So that one act of Adam is described with four different words in this section, 12 through 21. In verse 14, it's called a transgression. It's a violation of a moral standard. It, uh, it is referred to as a trespass, which is very similar. It's a violation of moral standard, but it's overstepping or stepping in the wrong path. In verse 16, it is called sin. And we've, we've talked about the word sin, hermatia. It means to miss the mark of God's glorious perfection. And in verse 19, it is referred to as disobedience. By the way, regarding the word disobedience, the the opposite of that would be obedience. The word obedience comes from two, a compound Greek word, hupakuo. Hupa, under, akuo, to hear. So what obedience is, is hearing and then doing, because you're under, you're submitting to the authority, whether it's God or, you know, and that's home structure, a father or mother, or in a work environment, uh, the employer or the supervisor or what have you. And, you know, for the common worker to the apprentice and, you know, those under them. Everyone likes to wield their authority. And the word obedience means that. So what is disobedience? It is to hear and not to remain under. <laughs> to make yourself the authority. That's what disobedience is. And it's described, what Adam's act is described that way. So whatever term you use, whether it's transgression or trespass or sin or disobedience, or you could throw in iniquity or rebellion or lawlessness, all words that describe sin, whatever term it is, it came into the world that day so long ago. And we needn't go any further than our own lives and our own family to find evidence that proves that sin entered into the world. I mean, what, what is it but sin when we find ourselves manipulating people into being and doing what we think they should be and do? That's sin. That's sin. That's what it is. What is it when we see ourselves become angry and defensive when someone criticizes us in any way? What stirs in us? Well, that's sin. What tempts me to do the things that I know I shouldn't do? Or keeps me from doing the things that I know I should do? Sin. Sin in me, right? What is it when our children throw a temper tantrum? It's not funny, is it? It's sin. It's sin. What is it when you disobey the speed limit? Sin. That's right, it's sin. And I could go on and on ad infinitum, ad nauseum, with questions like that, that all points out that we need not look around very much and we notice that sin 
exists in our world. A, a report. Oh, and by the way, that all of that sin was related to Adam's sin, connected to Adam's one act. So, a report by the Minnesota Crime Commission uh, from s- some years ago now, but it was, it was a report that they came out with in studying humanity. It came to the following conclusion. Every baby starts life as a little savage. <laughs> this isn't a Christian report. This is a you know, secular and governmental thing. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He's completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny him these wants, and he sees with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous if he wasn't so helpless. He's dirty. He has no morals, no knowledge, no skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, are born delinquent. If permitted to continue in the self-centered world of his infancy, given free reign to his impulsive actions to satisfy his wants, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. That's quite a conclusion, isn't it? By a secular source. It's a clear statement of what we're talking about, the universality of sin. Sin came into the world through one man. Second point, death came into the world through sin. So Paul is basically saying that sin is never alone. Something else came into the world with it, tagging on to it, holding on. Sin entered into the world with death holding on to his elbow. It's kind of like he's personifying sin and death, right? And what he... The way he puts it is death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. So, listen, there's no argument about this fact either. Death is everywhere around us and has personally affected all of us at some point in time. I mean, we're going to have a memorial, a a time of celebration about Steve's death and then his entrance into heaven, his going into his eternal home. And we've had to do that recently as well. And it, it, it affects all of us. It's everywhere. So in these two forces, sin and death, being introduced into humanity, you, you could say we have a pair of royal tyrants ruling over humanity. King sin and queen death hold their, in their remorseless hands every human being without exception other than Christ who was without sin. He did taste death, but he was without sin. So what does Paul mean in this statement at the end of that where he says, death spread to all men because all sinned, right? Well, there's a fair amount of disagreement about this particular phrase, because all sinned. Does this mean that because we, uh, we die because we have all personally committed acts of sin? Is that why we die? And the answer to that is no. No. We all do personal acts of sin. And we will all die, but that's not what Paul is saying here. I mean, 
truth is, we all know that babies die, even being ripped out of their mother's womb, before they would ever have an opportunity to commit an act of sin. They have a sin nature in their mother's womb, but they have no opportunity to commit acts of sin. Unless you want to say, when my babies kick me, I think he's sinning. I, you know, I don't, I don't ever, ever hear a mother say that. It's like, oh, you want to feel? Ah, that's his heel. Did he just blow his nose? Uh, he coughed, I think. Yeah, not, it's like, that was an aggressive act of sinfulness. No one's ever thinking that because there is no personal acts of sin by babies who never get the opportunity to live in this world because they're put to death before that. So, no, it's not because of personal acts of sin that all died. Well, does the phrase mean that uh, because we're all born with the sin nature, we will all die? Well, it is true that we all are born with the sin nature, but that's not what Paul's talking about here either. The answer would be no. It, it is true that our nature is somehow connected to Adam because, you know, he's first parent with Eve and they passed on that nature to their descendant. But that's not what Paul's talking about. It's not talking about inherited sin. Neither of these ideas fit the context or the comparison that Paul is making. And again, there is disagreement on this, but, you know, of course I think I'm right. As you do too, <laughs> hopefully. It doesn't, doesn't, you know, if you don't, that's okay. You all, we all agree that sin came into the world and death is a result of sin. But what does this mean then that, you know, we all, all people die because all sinned? Well, the answer is that Paul's referring to what is called imputed sin or, or let's put it more clearly, uh, imputed sin that is connected to federal headship, to federal headship. This means that when Adam sinned, he was acting as a representative for the human race that would come out of him when he sinned. His sin became the, the cause or the ground of condemnation and death of the race that would come from him. No one but Adam committed that first sin, right? Eve, you know, she committed a sin too, but it's, it's put on the shoulders of Adam because he was the head of the human race. But since Adam represents, you know, all people, God viewed all as involved and thus guilty and condemned. Now, again, this is where you'll hear people saying, well, that doesn't seem fair. But it shouldn't be difficult for us to understand this concept, for it is the same principle we function under, as I, as I mentioned earlier, un, under our own government. For example, when a, when a president of the United States declares war on another nation, He's acting as our federal head. I mean, yes, Congress has to agree to it and so on, but he's acting as our federal He declares war, but he is not saying, I'm personally going to attack them. I'm going to war with them. He's saying, we, as a nation, are at war with this people. He's acting as our representative. In the same way, Adam was acting as our representative, the representative of the entire human race when he sinned, and thus all sinned in him. 
in him. Again, we rejoice that we are in Christ. Before we ever got in Christ, we were in Adam. He was our federal head. Listen, consider with me the fivefold fivefold repetition, I think, that points out that this is what Paul is talking about in this section. In verse 15, we read that many died through one man's trespass. Many died, but it was through one man's trespass. Verse 16 says the judgment following one trespass, Adam's trespass. Verse 17 says because of one man's trespass, death reigned. Verse 18 says, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. One trespass, judgment, condemnation. And then in verse 19, it says, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. He's talking about Adam acting as federal head for the entire human race. We are connected to him by virtue of being a descendant of his. We are in Adam, he says, long before we ever came into the world. We were in him and in God's understanding, God's view. So this view of what Paul's talking about is supported by the fact that the whole passage is focusing on two men who did two different acts with two different results on two different races of people. Right? Okay, verse 13 and 14 support this view as well, adding additional information on on how Adam's one act impacted the whole human race. We read there, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted, imputed, or reckoned where there is no law. Yet sin reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. So it's interesting that the law, Paul, is, he brings law into it, but it is pointing out that it's not tied to the issue, really. It's not really part of the argument that he's making. And the law that he's referring to is clearly the Mosaic law, because it says right in the text, from the time of Adam to Moses, sin was not counted uh, during that time. Uh, So, though the law was not given until the time of Moses, sin was still in the world, and death reigned over everyone, even though it wasn't counted or imputed or reckoned to them in the same way as it would be after the law was given. So, one can't be, listen, one can't be counted a lawbreaker if there is no law. If, if, if you could find a street where there was not a speed limit, presumably you could drive whatever speed you wanted to and you couldn't get pulled over and given a speeding ticket because there is no speed limit. If there is no law, you can't be counted, reckoned, or considered as a lawbreaker. But even though that is true, Paul says people still died before the law was given Sin was in the world, and it universally led to death. Therefore, people still died because they shared in what? In the guilt of Adam. In his one trespass, they acted in him. Even over those sinning, you know, not in the likeness of his disobedience, his trespass, his transgression, 
because uh, here's a thought for you because Adam and lived in in the in the state of innocence in the perfect environment right and death wasn't there and sin wasn't there they they didn't have any of that they they and yet they chose to sin Adam chose to sin to dishonor God to disobey God and then they were evicted from the garden of eden Never to be allowed in there again, right? So that they could not eat from the tree of life and continue to live forever as sinners. Because God had said, the day that you eat of, it, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll die. Surely you will die. Both physically at some point as well as spiritually at that very moment. So God sent them out of the garden. They couldn't get in there. They had no more opportunity to disobey that single prohibition that God had given them. They no longer had access to the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, and nor has any of their descendants, right? So there is a sense it would be impossible for anyone to commit a sin in the likeness of Adam's offense because no one starts out in a perfect state of innocence and then moves into sin. No one can access the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're born with the knowledge of good and evil. And so there is a sense in which this is a, you couldn't sin like Adam did because of the circumstances. And yet the truth is we all kind of sin like Adam because his sin was a disobedience. It was a transgression. It was a trespass, as the text says. So it's not the same act, but it's like his act, right? His one act. Now, the last phrase of verse 14 introduces us to Paul's actual main focus in the section, which is making a comparison with contrast between the one act of Adam and the Oh, and its effects in the one act of Christ and its effects, which is described in detail in verses 15 through 21. So he introduces it by stating that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And that almost becomes a title for Christ, right? He was the one who was to come. And with this statement about Adam, Paul transitions, if you will, into the glorious truth of the gospel of salvation from sin and death, the universal sin and universal death. So what is meant by Adam being a type of the one who was to come was that Adam was the head of the old race of sinners who are all destined to die, right? In contrast, we'll see that Christ initiated a new race. We could call it the race of the redeemed who reign in life forevermore. So the comparison is there, but the contrast is what's most important. That brings us to the second main point. Jesus brought the reign of life. Jesus brought the reign of life. So these verses, in a certain sense, could be seen as an expansion of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, where it says, the first man, Adam became a living being. The word is soul there. So he became a living soul. The last Adam, that is a reference to Christ, became a life-giving spirit, right? A life-giving spirit. In our present text, Paul concentrates on Adam and Christ, paralleling their singular acts and the results from such. 
focusing on how Christ has overcome the reign of sin and death and brought into the you know brought into the world through Adam and Christ establishes justification and life in its place. <laughs> oh praise be to Jesus the savior. The living savior. Paul identifies three basic differences between what was brought about by Adam and Christ. Now these are not words that come out of the text itself. They're my my words that are kind of looking at these verses that if you read them again, you realize, sounds like he's saying the same thing over and over again to a certain extent, all the way from 15 through 21. And I'm going to just put it in three, in three different categories as we look at Adam and Christ, their singular act and the effect of it. So the first is that of motive, motive, which is dealing with why they did what they did right? Motive. Why they did what they did. And that, secondly, that of effect, the result of their acts. And then lastly, we'll look at the degree, what was the full impact of their choice, their acts. So the motive, number one. What was the motive? What was the motive behind Adam's choice and what Christ chose to do? We read in verse 15 that the free gift is not like the trespass, right? The free gift is not like the trespass. The Greek word that is used for trespass refers to making a, a false step or uh, you know, a, a step that where you lose your footing. Uh, and, and then it views it as a violation of a, of a moral standard. It's an offense. And then lastly, it's kind of a deviation from the path, a deviation from the path. So think then of Adam. He knew full well the path that God had commanded him to follow. He knew full well God's instructions in the garden to him were very clear. It's put in Genesis two fifteen through 17 this way. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So, by the way, in case you didn't know this, work was not a fall thing. Work was a perfect thing. God intended to be a good thing for people to work, even before there was sin. Yeah. So your work matters to God. Then it continues on. And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, You shall surely eat, uh, surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Dying you will die. You will die physically at some point, but you immediately die spiritually. So Adam knew the path, right? But he deviated from the path God had given him and, and he violated God's moral standard with that choice to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The free gift, Paul says, was not like that. It was different from the trespass. And the, the word that's translated free gift in the first part of verse 15, there's a lot of free and gift in that verse, but the first time it's mentioned free gift, it comes from the Greek word charisma, you probably have heard that term before. The root word for, of that is charis. That is the word for grace. Charisma is expanding it. And thus it is a grace gift. It is a free gift, a grace gift. 
it indicates you know, by that word that it was a deed of grace that Christ performed. The act of Christ was motivated by his desire to provide for people, for sinners, what they could never gain by themselves, which we saw last week in, in the first ten verses. They were helpless. They were weak. They couldn't do anything to change their standing with God, right? They, they were sinners. They were enemies. They were ungodly and they couldn't do anything about it. They were helpless. So we may say that Adam's trespass was an act of self-assertion. Self-assertion. He, he went on his own way instead of God's way. Went on his own path instead of God's path. Here's God's path. He stepped out of that path and said, I'm going my own way by making that one choice. Self-assertion. Making himself, in essence, God. Saying, I'm I'm the authority here. God, you're not the authority at this moment. I am. Self-assertion. And we could say that it was a result of him selfishly wanting something that was not found on the path that God had given him, right? On the other hand, the act of Christ was one of self-sacrifice. Not self-assertion, but self-sacrifice. Of free and unmerited favor. Submitting himself to the Father. Not self-asserting himself into his own path, but submitting himself in the will of the Father for the benefit of others. Oh, that's beautiful. What a contrast. So, therefore, the motives are clearly different between Adam and Christ. One was an act of self-assertion and self-desire, and the other was an act of self-sacrifice and complete surrender to the Father's will, and it was done for the welfare of sinners. Adam acted for himself. Jesus acted for sinners. Praise him. Number two, the effect. What is the effect of these two acts? It's different. And then the contrasting effects are first seen again in verse 15, where it says that the trespass resulted in the death of many, right? The trespass resulted in the death of many. In contrast, it says that the free gift, which was different, resulted in grace being given and the free gift of grace abounding to the many. So instead of death, To the many, it was free grace given to the many. The free gift. And the gift isn't identified in this statement, but we should know what the gift is. It's the gift of eternal life. He'll say that clearly in Romans 6.23, where he says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it refers to it all the way down in verse 21 as well, where uh, the last verse in this section, thanks be to God. No, wrong one too many pages. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, the first contrast then is death contrasted with life, right? And the, the second one is seen in verse 16, where we see that Adam's one sin brought about judgment, and that resulted in condemnation. In contrast, the free gift of Christ's one act resulted in justification. 
even though there were many transgressions or trespasses. Do you get the beauty of that? And it's not only the act of sin versus the act of self-sacrifice, but there it is, the one sin brought about something, judgment and condemnation for the many, but the one act of Christ overcame many trespasses, not just one. Many. Every trespass that would be made because people are associated with Adam in his sin. The third difference is seen in verse 17 where it says that through Adam's act of trespass, death reigned over the many. And then he contrasts that with the free gift of righteousness which brought about reigning in life. So it's, again, it's death and life. Reigning in life for those who are, are in Christ. The final difference is seen in verse 19, where it shows that through Adam's act of disobedience, the many were made sinners. Through the one act of Jesus Christ, his act of, and it's referred to as obedience, his act of obedience where Adam's was an act of disobedience, the many were made righteous. Okay, let's pause there for a moment, make sure we understand what those two phrases are saying. The Adam's one act of disobedience, the many were made sinners. Christ's one act of obedience, the many were made righteous. What is meant by this last difference is not that the many were made to commit sins, but that they were declared sinners by the virtue of Adam acting as their federal head. That's the context, the flow of this passage. It is true that they would all commit acts of sin, but he's talking here, made sinners is declared sinners. A judicial statement from the righteous judge. And then, regarding Christ, the same is true. This is not saying that the many were made to do righteous deeds, even though a verse like Ephesians 2.10 says, you know, after talking about grace and salvation, it says... Uh, you know, that God created us for good works that we might do. You know, he created them even before he spoke anything into existence. So we were made to do good deeds, righteous acts. But that's not what it's saying here. It's saying that God declares sinners righteous because of their relationship with Christ, who is their federal head. Federal headship. So the contrast and the effects of the one act of Adam and the one act of Christ couldn't be more clear or complete, I think. It is death versus life. It is condemnation versus justification, which happens to be Romans chapter 1, 18 through 3.20, condemnation. Romans 3.21 through the end of chapter 5, justification. So it's condemnation versus justification. It's the reign of death versus reigning in life. And, and then lastly, being declared sinners as compared to being declared righteous by God. Well, let's talk thirdly about the degree. The, the, I, the last difference is really found in 20 and 21. Let me read those verses again. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Remember he had mentioned the law in verse 12? He had mentioned it at verse 13? Even though there wasn't law between the time of Adam and Moses, all sinned and still died. So uh, here he mentions law again. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. <laughs> so that as sin reigned in death, great also grace 
also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he, here he shows the difference in the degree to which Adam's one act and the one act of Christ, that act of grace, affects people. Who it affects, how it affects them in essence. So in reading these verses, my, some might wonder, well, why does he bring the law into it? I mean, I, I, if he, you know, in the in context of Romans, I've already mentioned he's constantly dealing with the Jewish opponent, the straw man, and so he's like, that, and that could be why he puts it in here. It's like I got to throw the law and make sure that they understand that I'm not speaking in a deprecating way about the law. In fact, as I said in chapter three, at the end of three, I fulfill the law because I'm saying what the law was actually given for, right? So it could be that that's what's going on, but for us as readers, you know, we might think, well, if Adam's sin was well before the law, as he said in, in the first three verses, and Christ's act was meant to overcome the effects of Adam's sin, what is the point of bringing the law into the discussion? If everything boils down to Adam's sin and Christ's sacrifice, so that we could receive grace. Why was the law even given, right? Well, first we need to recognize something. And there may not be a second to this, but so it's just a point about the law. We need to recognize that the law was an element in God's plan of salvation. It, it served a purpose, but that purpose was never, ever redemptive in nature. What do you mean by that, Spencer? Well, disobedience to the law has never sent a soul to hell. And obedience to the law has never brought a single person to heaven. It's not what the law was given for. Sin and condemnation were, by the way, in the world long before the law was given, and so was the way to escape sin's penalty. It was always by grace through faith, in God revealing himself to people. So, what is the point of the law? Well, Paul's answer, why he brings it is, is essentially to say that the law was never given to make one right with God. He's hammering this over and over again. Have you got that as we go through Romans? I mean, he's hammering it over and over again. He's not done yet. When we get to chapter 7, he's going to hammer it big time again. And the reason is because it is so true that people believe in their sinful nature. If I just do enough good, if I just do what is right, I'll be okay with God. You know, as long as I'm better than those other people, like the Pharisee thought about the tax gatherer, right? As long as I'm better, I'll be right with God. So that's just kind of built into fallen humanity. But the law wasn't given to make one right with God. It was given to show people how terribly wrong and sinful they are in the sight of God. That's the point. He says it this way, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now this doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that the law was given so that more sin would be committed. You could misunderstand that, right? The law was given to increase trespass. It doesn't mean that it was given so that more people would commit more sins, so that more grace could be supplied. Rather, it means that the law was given so that people could recognize how sinful they truly are before God, how their life is bent toward rebellion 
law-breaking, disobedience, transgression, and trespass, iniquities, etc., etc. They're bent to that in life. So, you know, I, I can think of it in a practical way. It's something like a person who reads a sign to stay off the grass. And then they proceed to walk on it and sit on it and you know, pay no attention to the sign. I, I remember years ago, we happened to be downtown. I think some people were visiting, so we wanted to show them downtown. We were down on 4th Avenue, where the old city government building was, and the mayor's office was still there at the time. And, and out front of that, on 4th Avenue side, a uh, beautiful area of grass. There's the old log cabin that sits over on the one side. And... Uh, and it's a place where people gather and they, they stand there and they sit down and they eat lunch from the vendors there that are on the street. Some musician will come along and play music, hoping to get tips, you know, to support himself or herself. And it's a, it's a nice little area, kind of fun to go down to at times. But I remember one year that we were down there, there was a sign that said, please stay off the grass. Guess what was going on? People paid no attention to the sign. They were on the grass, sitting, talking, eating lunch. They paid absolutely no attention to the grass. They didn't care about, uh, you know, the authority that put it up there. I mean, they just were demonstrating their natural rebelling against authority. So there's nothing wrong with the sign, right? I mean, the one who put it there has the authority to put it there. It's right for them to do with the grass, whatever they see fit, that would be the, the city government. Well, the owner of the property, they have the right to do that. And, you know, if he wants to turn it into gravel or lay down some metal with spikes sticking up, I probably couldn't do that. But you get my point. It's not the, the visitor's property. It's the, the city's property. And they have the right to do with it what they want. But because the sign places a restriction on people's freedom to do whatever they want to do, it causes resentment. And it has the effect of stimulating some people, at least, to rebel against the authority that placed the sign there. So I'm going to sit my butt on this grass and forget you. That's kind of like sin. And us toward God, what we were bent to in life. God, I'm not sticking on the path that you gave me. No way. I'm my own, own authority. So, in the same way, the law was not given to produce sin, but to show sinners how far they fall short of God's glorious perfection and the standard of his righteousness. With the final purpose, that they might see their sin and understand that the only way to be right with God, the only solution to their sin problem is grace in Jesus Christ. So, only... Only when we see how terribly sinful we are, how we are offending holy God, will we ever understand how marvelous God's grace to us as sinners is. If we don't get how evil, how wicked, how offensive we are to God, we'll never understand his grace. We may say, yeah, I love the grace of God. But we won't be singing from our heart, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and make me clean. No, we won't sing that from the heart. We may sing those words if we sing that hymn, but 
we don't understand it because we don't understand our sin. So Paul wants it to be very clear that the, the degree to which sin is present, the grace of God is more present. That's the beauty of this. Where sin abounded, and grace more than abounded. The little rendering of this is where sin increased, grace superabounded. It's like, I love that. Superabounded. Praise God for a superabounding and marvelous grace through our Lord Jesus Christ that overcomes the effects of Adam's one sin and our union with him from the beginning. So let's bring a conclusion to this. One of the most critical questions that comes out of this section is important to address is what is meant by the many and all men, or your translation may say all people, I don't know. But it's mentioned in verse 12, verse 15, 18, and 19. The many or all men. So does the many and all men refer to the same group of people every time that's used in those verses? So some people believe that this is the case, and so this passage teaches universal condemnation as well as universal salvation. That every person will eventually be delivered from sin's penalty through the one act of sacrifice by Christ. Because it's the many, the many, the many, the many, all, all throughout the text. If sin and death is universal, then isn't justification and eternal life in both case, in, in, uh, eternal as well, since both refer to the many and to all men? Well, it's really important to notice verse 17. There's a qualifying phrase in that verse that gives insight to these questions. Notice, it says this, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The qualifying phrase is, those who receive those who receive. It becomes helpful in understanding that Paul must be restricting the meaning of the many and all when he's referring to the one act of Christ and the results that it has for people. What Paul is indicating is not a, a numerical extent of those who are condemned being the same as the number of people who will be justified. It's not saying that. His point is that all who are condemned, and that includes the whole human race at the time that they are born into this world, they're condemned. Why? Because they're in Adam. He acted as their federal head. Well, all who are justified or declared righteous are so because of the one act of Jesus Christ, and only those, and all of those who receive, who receive the grace and gift of eternal life, are in Christ. He is their federal head. Adam and Christ are both representatives of races of humankind. Adam's race is all-inclusive. Christ's race is not. So the question to ask yourself is this. What one of these two races do I belong to? It's the very question that Pastor Greg was raising earlier. Which one of these two men do I 
you know, associate my life with, the Pharisee or the tax together. Here it is. What race do you belong to? Adam's race? Or to the race that Christ established through his act of sacrifice? Are you one of those who may still be found in Adam's race, bound to sin and facing eternal death? Or are you to be found among those who are bound to Christ and will always reign in life with him? And the answer to that question is absolutely, absolutely the most critical question you can actually ask and answer in your entire life. And Paul points out in this passage, unless you have received the, uh, received, received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, you are still bound to Adam. He still is your federal head. You are still in sin. And I would urge you to consider that the importance of settling this question is not only critical, it's eternal. It's not only important, it will decide where you've been forever in the presence of the glory of God where there is joy forevermore or will you be separated from his glory the manifestation of his power along with all those who have not received the gospel the gospel is great news isn't it God is good to us in Christ our Lord Lord, we thank you for this passage, praise you for the clarity of it, and we ask that we might live in light of it. It's not just theological big ideas, but really is transformative to our lives if we'll pay attention. Because if we really see ourselves as being in Christ, then we're going to want to live for him. And if we see ourselves in Adam, then we'll know that there is a certain terrifying end that we face. That will affect the way that we live, the way that we treat our family or other people, when people we work with. That would make a difference to how we respond to authority. It just affects every area of our life. So we pray that we will live in light of it to the glory of your name. Thank you for the food that we're going to eat as well, your provision of that good gift. We give you thanks for all of this in Christ's great name. Amen.